Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. I found an old picture of me, taken about a block away from what is now the Grove Museum in Tallahassee, Florida. That picture was taken in March 1992. I'm facing the camera as the springtime Tallahassee Parade, Tallahassee's biggest annual celebration, goes by behind me. Positioned in the frame is a Confederate flag, proudly carried by two people parading down the middle of the street. My three-year-old self is blocking whatever group came after the flag. Maybe a club, maybe a mascot, maybe a group of Civil War reenactors. The fact that a Confederate flag in a parade happened to be in the background of this candid shot hints at the white supremacy that undergirds Tallahassee, a city that had a majority black population during Reconstruction. In 1907, the city refused Andrew Carnegie's offer to build a new library because the conditions of the donation stated that the library would have to serve black patrons. In the 1970s, Appalachian Parkway was built right over the black Smoky Hollow neighborhood, a pattern of development which repeats itself to this day. And the local newspaper, the Tallahassee Democrat, waited until 2006 to apologize for its pro-segregationist coverage of the 1956 Tallahassee bus boycott. And of course, that white supremacy extends to the local museums. So the whole idea of historic preservation in the United States, so in our country, has been what is worth preserving. And here we are interrogating the source material to reach back in the past and bring stories that have been dormant or deliberately excluded, silenced, now into a place where they can be told. I think what's interesting is how museums have a role to play in that. Exactly, because right. Because museums have been, maybe the nicest way to say it is complicit. Oh yeah, in, yeah. In, in that in that story yeah, they're line. part of the culture, right? They're right. part of that dominant narrative. And that's why this historic house, the Grove Museum, which opened in 2017, is so interesting in the context of how Tallahassee interprets its history. This is John Grandage, executive director at the Grove Museum. My name is John Grandage. I'm the executive director at the Grove Museum in Tallahassee, Florida. And we are at the Call Collins House at the Grove Museum. At first glance, the Grove Museum doesn't look like a museum that might change how Tallahassee interprets its history. It's a stately mansion house in the center of town, less than a block from the parade route, and it was built from 1835 to 1839 by Richard Keith Call. After that, it was owned by a series of wealthy Floridians, most recently by former Florida Governor Leroy Collins and his wife, Mary Call Collins, who left the house to the state to preserve as a museum. So I've been here since 2014. There wasn't really a, a clear interpretive plan. Mm -hmm. So coming up with the, let's tell the whole story, let's talk not just about politics, but let's dig deeper and try to look at this as sort of like a witness to all this history, and then coming up with the, let's emphasize on civil rights. The museum uses the governorship of Leroy Collins as a narrative arc to tell the whole story. It traces how his own thinking on race evolved from his early years as a staunch segregationist as an opening to tell the story of civil rights in Florida. Collins was elected governor in 1954, the same year that the Supreme Court decision of Brown v. Board of Education ruled that segregation is unconstitutional in public schools. When he ran for office, he didn't initially come out in support of that. So it's thinking about how does the country respond to civil rights? 
Collins feared also, too, to be very frank about it, the economic ramifications of Florida having kind of, you know, people being fire hosed in the street or people standing in front of a doorway of a school mm-hmm. and like shouting and calling out the troops to prevent integration like that to him was, would have been very damaging to the image of Florida. Collins became one of the most prominent white Southern politicians to speak in favor of racial integration and the growing civil rights movement. He was governor from 1955 through 1961, which means he was in charge during the 1956 Tallahassee bus boycott. The bus boycott here with the two students at FAMU that that really started it, Wilhelmina Jakes and Carrie Patterson are their names. And then the community organized um, behind them. Then you see the local churches, people like C.K. Steele, leaders in the community sort of bring some broader community organization, which of course the boycott put all this economic pressure on the city and the bus company, which ultimately led to them repealing segregated seating ordinances. And at the same time, the bus boycott in Montgomery, which started earlier, but runs somewhat parallel. And that's an important part of our interpretation of Collins is that he's undeniably has a very specific moral view of the world. And as the state or as the local government in Florida started to react very extremely to civil rights activism, like jailing the sit-in demonstrators. What we can trace is here's a person who began to question these beliefs that he had grown up with, right? He says it's like a two-class society, right? And he's on the privileged side. And then seeing the response and thinking about the potential for all kinds of ramifications in society, that's really what drove him to do a lot of the things that he did. And so he began to adapt his thinking. So in that way, we can actually take Collins and position the decisions he made, you know, not as something that came solely from him. So it gives a little bit of power to the activists Mm -hmm. and it helps to position the people really who are putting it on the line. So alongside the Collins story, we're able to tell that story of the local activists. And so it's important that Collins didn't act in a vacuum. Even more critical to the story, in a way that decenters Collins, was the white backlash to his moderate stance on civil rights and the Tallahassee bus boycott. The version of the civil rights movement that I was taught in public schools in Tallahassee focused on sweeping and uplifting narratives that had widespread support and presented progress as a straight upward line. Simply put, that's not what happened. After leaving the governor's office, Leroy Collins was appointed by President Johnson in 1964 to direct the Community Relations Service under the Civil Rights Act. And so he was present in March 1965 in Selma, Alabama, to negotiate on behalf of the federal government. So the marchers are attacked on March 7th. Collins comes in on March 9th. They sort of negotiate this sort of settlement. They progress past Selma. They go, you know, on to Montgomery, but this photo is taken and this becomes like the number one piece of like anti-Collins propaganda, right? So he's with John Lewis and Andrew Young and Dr. King and Coretta Scott King and Ralph, like the main figureheads in the civil rights movement, he runs for Senate in 1968, loses the election, and it's really tied back to him being at Selma. He was, you know, too liberal. He was associated with these civil rights activists. And that blowback in the South is really pronounced during that 1968 election. Collins went from receiving 99% of the vote share in Tallahassee in 1954, when he ran for governor, to 48% in his 1968 Senate race. Again, the museum uses his story as the opening act, presenting Collins' preserved office 
and an old-timey TV playing videos of his speeches, alongside the most detailed account of the Tallahassee bus boycott and backlash that I've ever seen. But here's where the museum really opens up. Remember when I mentioned that the house was built by Richard Keith Call? So when we take people through the tour, we sort of give them that story arc, but then we, we jump back and nest it all within the fact that this was a plantation, that Bond's people, who were claimed as the property of Richard Keith Call, built the home. And like you can reach up and still touch the physical fabric of the home that they laid into place, the bricks or those floor joists or whatever. The number one artifact that speaks to African-American history here is the house itself. And it's the positioning of credit who built the home, right? Mm-hmm. Enslaved people built the house, right? We get this telling of American history where it becomes, you know, call built the house, which we know is, you know, maybe not in all cases intended to erase the people. It's our manner of speaking, right? It's kind of the way that we conceptualize this history at a broader level. So even to position the credit back to the craftspeople that built the house, was like vitally important in putting this museum together. Because mm-hmm. when we come, when we bring people in this space and say, think about Collins in that civil rights era, and then jump back a hundred years and what this property would have literally been witnessing on a day-to-day basis. Civil rights had been really the purview of only people like Call. You know, not even, you know, women at that time and certainly not at the African-Americans whom were considered property and sort of denied all, you know, humanity like we we're talking about, even in the records, right? They're, they're tally marks. They're maybe an age or a gender. And, and I can show you some ways that we've worked against that, but mm-hmm. this speaks to that. One of the interactive exhibits is Call's logbook about the people he enslaved, represented by tally marks and business records. But the Grove Museum uses the interactive to focus on their humanity. So like, for example, this family here, starting with Tom Hackley, we've been able to trace their family up into the present. I mean, there's present living people who we're in contact with who are descended from Tom and Diana Hackley. So that's like that genealogical role that a museum can play. So like Tom is 34. These are their children. And the bank owned them as property at the time, kind of a complex thing. But we've, we've been able to take a document like this and then jump to different documents and make connections to like living people, right? Who are, who are increasingly the tools that we have through databases and things like that enable us to do this genealogical research. So people all around the country are finding out things they had no idea about. The museum presents this house and even the land it sits on as a witness to all of this. The very presence of this place on the landscape is directly related to the forced removal of indigenous people from this area. So we wanted to bring in that because Call got his start as a soldier fighting against the Creeks, the Seminoles. And so he's literally, you know, as we know about kind of colonialism, this sort of dropping onto this place of an entirely different way of land use, politics, culture, etc., that swept generations of the indigenous people that have that lived here. They were in the process of being removed by the American government from this area, just as Call and his associates were coming here. So it was very active process. But there were cultures that had cultivated the land here successfully. And if we were to tell that same myth to the people who actually colonized, the Americans that colonized it, they would have thrown it out as ridiculous. They knew the cultures and society that had been here. They had actively waged war against them. And they knew it was about 
expanding slavery into this area, right? And that these red hills of Tallahassee were agriculturally going to be very productive. So it's, it's strange how we then tell these different stories because we, we don't want to engage fully with the removal of indigenous people. And we don't want to engage with slavery like as a, as a system that was, you know, the value of the land was not as important as literally the, the value placed upon those bodies that were put to work in reshaping the land. And people don't want to deal with that. What's unusual is that the Grove Museum does deal with it. Most institutions in Tallahassee simply don't. The mascot of Florida State University, right down the street where Grandage got a degree in indigenous history, is still, as of 2021, a representation of a Seminole Indian. The Grove Museum was able to build on the work of local Black museums and archives, some of which have been featured on previous episodes of this show. I would say like for a museum like this in Tallahassee, and I know you talked to Mrs. Barnes, so like if, if Altamese Barnes hadn't created the Riley House and hadn't created the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, and if Professor Eton hadn't created the Black Archives, and if we didn't have FAMU, like that's all the framework that it's interesting because we think about the his, his, historical museum landscape and it's largely defined by these um, institutions that don't represent the African-American community, let's say, right? And that's, as we talked about, is sort of a legacy of historic preservation of museum and cultural studies in the U.S. The Grove Museum's central location in the city, right across the street from the current governor's mansion, and its deliberate decision to focus on civil rights instead of the white owner protagonists is helping change how Tallahassee interprets its history. I think that's what makes this really a significant place and have the opportunity to tell a lot of those stories through the lens of this is witnessed here, right? This occurred here and that's what makes historic sites great. Like it's more real as opposed to if we were in a kind of museum in a box where you could tell and manufacture that story, but few places you could say that it happened. This has been Museum Archipelago. For a full transcript of this episode, as well as show notes and links, visit museumarchipelago.com. Museum Archipelago is supported by listeners like you who have joined Club Archipelago. Club Archipelago members get access to a bonus podcast where we've been doing in-depth reviews of how museums are portrayed in movies, TV shows, and even video games. If you can't get enough of how museums shape our lives, join Club Archipelago today by visiting jointhemuseum.club. And if you don't feel like it, that's totally cool too. Thanks for listening. And next time, bring a friend.